Welcome to Witnesses of the King. Today in Acts chapter 9, we have a news flash. Saul of Tarsus has been arrested. Yeah, you've heard that right. Saul of Tarsus has been arrested. And we're going to read this in Acts chapter 9. We're going to find a great bit of irony there. Saul of Tarsus goes to Damascus to arrest Christians, and he in, ends up being the one arrested. And so it's a beautiful uh, turnabout that the Lord does on this man. We're going to learn a great deal today because what we're going to do is we're going to look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who we know is later in the New Testament becomes known as Paul. He doesn't change his name. He just begins to minister much more to the Gentiles, where his, his uh, Greek name, Paul, would be more commonly used. And so we're talking about Paul. We're talking about the one who wrote a great deal of the New Testament, the one about whom the balance of the book of Acts is about. And so we have a great opportunity to look at the conversion of this man, how God radically intervenes in his life, and how we can learn about the radical intervention of God in our very own lives. And so it's no less miraculous, as we'll see as we get into the account here. Well, I want to look at this a bit at a time uh, today and just take a few verses at a time. I want to begin with Acts chapter 9, and let's look at the first two verses here to see who this is that we're dealing with. It says this, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So that sets up the context for why this Saul is traveling to Damascus. He's going there to lock up the people of the way, that is, followers of Jesus, the brand new church that we've seen born in the book of Acts here. Who are we dealing with? Well, this is Saul, a Jew of Tarsus. He's also known as Paul from Acts chapter 13 and following. Uh, he'll be referred to more as Paul. And he was a Pharisee. That's a very strict sect of Judaism. You'll re remember them from the Gospels who so harshly opposed Jesus seemingly at every turn. He studied under a particular Pharisee named Gamaliel, who we met in Acts chapter 5. And we met Paul first in Acts chapter 7, holding the coats for those who were stoning Stephen and thereby approving of this murder of Stephen, who had done nothing wrong, was proclaiming the truth to the Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem. And so he was very zealous to stop this way, to stop the church of Jesus Christ from spreading anymore. He saw it as a heresy. He persecuted the people in Jerusalem, and now he gets these papers to go to Damascus in Syria. This was a province of Rome that was north of Israel. And Damascus is still the same Damascus you've heard of to this day there in Syria, just north of Judea and Galilee. And so Damascus had a great number of synagogues and a large Jewish population. So there was no doubt some of them had been in Jerusalem at Pentecost, it not being terribly far away. And there's no doubt that some, when the persecution began at Jerusalem, ended up at Damascus. And so we have a twofold measure of believers coming into the congregations there, into the synagogues at Damascus. 
they say there, there were as many as 30 or 40 synagogues there, so a large Jewish population. Saul was apparently following leads, tracking the people where they had gone, where this way was spreading, and he decided Damascus was a place he had to go make some arrests and bring those people back to Jerusalem to answer to the Jewish leadership for their heresy. The charge uh, that we see here, we see very plainly that this Saul is an enemy of Christ. He opposes the work of Jesus Christ in the world. And as we know, as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, uh, Jesus has every right to do as he pleases in the world, especially to share the gospel, to spread his church, to take people from death to life. But this charge of enmity with Christ, before we give Saul a bad case, we need to see ourselves in this. We need to understand that prior to the Lord intervening in our own lives, that we ourselves were enemies of Christ and enemies of his cross. In Ephesians chapter 2, believers are described as being dead in their trespasses and sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, fulfilling the desires of the body and the mind. And so we were doing our, seemingly doing our own thing, but really we're enslaved to the ways of this world, enslaved to sin, enslaved to the evil one himself. And so we were enemies of God. Ephesians goes on to describe us as being hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In James 4, James describes it like this, You adulterous people, he says to the people he's writing to, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And indeed, that's what we were. We were following the ways of the world. We were enemies of God, like Saul of Tarsus. Now, we may not be arresting Christians or binding them up or anything else, but I want us to see that even if we think that we're loving God with our positions on the various issues, our political leanings, the things we do, the things we don't do, we have to ask ourselves, are we really doing it for the right reasons? Are we loving something else? Look at Saul of Tarsus. He loved his people. He loved his religion. He was a nationalist in the sense that he saw Judaism as the ultimate, as the, the, the highest privilege of citizenship in the world. He thought he loved God, but here he's actually an enemy of God. Now, how many of us do what we do for our love of tradition? To be respected or accepted by our peers or others, to maintain some kind of a position that we have or some kind of a wealth that we have or influence or reputation. How many of us do what we do? How many of us hold what would be considered an ethical or moral position? We act certain ways to get likes and shares of our social media posts. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about doing what seems to be good things, like Saul was doing, but we're actually doing these for selfish intent. We're doing these for other reasons, and we find ourselves actually to be at enmity with God. So my first encouragement to you today is simply this. Let's make, both of us here, an honest biblical assessment of our lives. 
Jesus said that the commandments of the law boiled down to two things, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our enemies as ourselves. And we need to be asking ourselves with an honest look at Saul of Tarsus, are we like him in that we're loving ourselves, our ways, our traditions, our comforts? Or are we open to the truth of God and what he's really doing in the world, who he really is? These are the questions that we have to ask ourselves, and they are deep questions, and they are hard questions, but we will do that. And the only way to do that is with the Scripture. Scripture calls us to God's terms, not to make some form of righteousness of our own conception, but to take on the righteousness of Christ himself through faith in his work. So even our good works, the Bible describes as filthy rags before God, if they are not performed in Christ. See, they come from sin-stained hands. And indeed, when we offer up even those good works to him, they are something that are unacceptable in his sight. We must ask, have I been washed with the blood of Jesus Christ? Are my hands clean? Have I been forgiven of sins so that what I can offer to God in ways of service is acceptable to him? No matter how zealous we are, no matter what kind of works we do, if we are without Christ, it is for nothing. But praise be to God for his love and grace in Jesus Christ. He intervenes in our lives. He draws us to himself. This is the wonder and the beauty of salvation, the opportunity given in Christ to go from being self-righteous, self-loving to a servant of God through faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. Saul had plans. He had an agenda like many of us do, but he was soon to be interrupted by salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at that as we go back to the scriptures here. Beginning in uh, chapter 9, verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, so he's going to Damascus with these papers, with permission to round up Christians and arrest them. As he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, 
Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Wow, what a dramatic scene we have, and what a powerful uh, testimony of Saul. I mean, he, he accounts this three more times, or two more times in the book of Acts. And this is a, a powerful scene. This salvation of Christ comes to him in this way and quite suddenly. Paul was saved. He was baptized. He received the Holy Spirit. And that happens to no one in the book of Acts without them believing in Jesus Christ. And so he obviously believed. Ananias laid hands on him. He received the Spirit and was baptized. He describes himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, as one untimely born. And I think we can see that's an understatement. He was born as a believer in a very unusual way. Paul's situation was truly unique. There's no other account like it in the Scriptures. Jesus appeared to him, spoke to him. He was struck blind, sent into the city to sit for three days before someone would come fill in the blanks for him. And this is what happens. God then sends a believer to him who heals him of the blindness and no doubt fills him in on a few things and then baptizes him. There is truly no conversion experience like this in the scripture. This is quite bizarre and this is a special case. Or was it a special case? Have you really considered the miracle of salvation? In Matthew chapter 19, a rich young man comes to Jesus. And there was a misconception among his disciples, Jesus' own disciples and people in general at the time, that the rich must be close to the kingdom of heaven. The mistake they were making is they were reading the promises in the book of Deuteronomy, promises that were given to the nation of Israel as a whole for their collective uh, blessings and curses based upon their behavior while they lived in the land. And these blessings and curses, the blessings included being wealthy, having good health, having long life, having a large family. All these things were part of the blessings of living in the land. But what they did is they wrongly took those things as individualistic and they figured if someone was wealthy, it was because God was pleased with them. This was obviously a good person because God saw fit to bless them with wealth. Well, this rich young man comes to Jesus and Jesus takes this opportunity to dispel that myth. Interestingly, people still teach that exact thing today. They teach you that if you follow God and you obey him, that he will bless you with wealth and health and everything else. But that is simply not the case. Jesus made it clear that his followers would have difficulty in this world. Now, there are certain blessings many great blessings, most of them spiritual to the Christian life, 
But those spiritual blessings do overflow into the natural way of doing things. Someone not beset by sin, someone set free from sin and the cares of the world and things like that have a great deal of blessing and generally fare better in this earth. But Jesus makes a point here. And he, uh, this young man says, oh yeah, I've kept all the law and everything else. And Jesus then says to him, he says, what you have to do is give all that you have to the poor and come and follow me. And the account says that this young man went away sorrowful because of his great wealth. And after this young man leave, leaves, Jesus says to the disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And he went on to say, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, according to their context, Jesus using hyperbole here was saying that entering the kingdom of heaven was impossible even for the best among us. So they ask the question, who then can be saved? Jesus looks at them and says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Did you get that? With man this is impossible. In other words, salvation, entering into the kingdom is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about becoming a child of God. And he's saying it is impossible with God or with man. It is only possible with God. So if there were ever a rich man from worldly terms, this was Saul of Tarsus. And, and yes, it appears he was literally rich at this time, but he was religious. He was zealously religious. He was the keeper of the law of the most strict sect of Judaism in history. But all this, his pre-Christ resume, as I call it, was insufficient for him. And indeed, all that we have is insufficient for our salvation. Without God, it is not possible to be saved. All salvation is truly miraculous. The book of Romans makes it very clear. No one truly seeks after God. No one understands. No one seeks Him. We've all turned aside. No one does good. Not even one, it says. In the Bible, the unsaved are called blind. The unsaved are called dead. And nowhere except the case of Christ can the dead raise themselves. In salvation, we are moved from death to life. We are born again, as Jesus described it to Nicodemus. Because why? Because we are spiritually dead without Christ. And Jesus also says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he I will raise up on the last day. Well, my encouragement to you is this. And I want to show this to you here. Realize that all salvation is a miraculous intervention of God. All salvation is. Now, Saul's salvation was dramatic, that this voice, you know, the light shone and a voice spoke and, and he was stricken blind and, you know, the, the actual voice of God, of Jesus himself, speaks to him. And to us, that's dramatic, that's awesome, that we would call miraculous. But I say to you this, 
all salvation is miraculous because all salvation is a work of God. The dead do not raise themselves. And the first thing we must do is realize that all salvation is the miraculous intervention of God. This is encouraging in two ways. First of all, it means that there's hope for every one of us. Look how wicked Saul was prior to his conversion. Look how he was literally fighting against God. And understand that the grace of God can overcome every obstacle in the salvation of a human being. No one's out of his reach. No one has sunk so low. No one has sinned so bad. No one's ego is so high. No one is too proud to be humbled by God and saved. That's the first encouragement here. First of two parts of this encouragement here. The second is this. When we understand this, that all salvation is the miraculous intervention of God, we will not trust in our own ways or our own works to be saved. Now, we will probably not have God speak to us in an audible kind of way. He'll not blind us on the road somewhere, but our experience will be no less miraculous. It will likely be as simple as watching some video sermon that someone referred you to or someone gave you, or someone linked you to, some boring old guy just preaching the gospel, the same it's been preached for 2,000 years. And all of a sudden, boom, God intervenes. He reveals to you the ways in which you fall short. He reveals to you that salvation is only in Jesus Christ, that our only hope for life eternal is in Him, that for our sins we have a weight of, of wrath over our heads that we cannot bear that will result in eternal suffering for us. But in Christ, He bears that burden. He took it upon Himself on the cross, taking our place for the payment of sin and offering to us the free gift of eternal life. It could be that simple. It could be as simple as going to church again. You haven't gone in, in a long time, but but then you can go and you can persist and you can keep trying and you can hold on. And all of a sudden there's that one sermon, that one time that just God just lets you have it. And he takes your heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh. You suddenly become convicted of your sin. Look how Saul was convicted of his sin. That Jesus himself says, why are you persecuting me? And he realized, doesn't say so, but it was obvious, he realized he was sinning against God. And he accounts of, when he accounts this later, he makes it clear. His world was turned upside down. Your world will be turned upside down when God intervenes in your life. What do you do if God intervenes in your life? Well, what do you do? You do is repent. You trust Jesus Christ for your salvation. The, the sign that Saul of Tarsus repented here is that indeed he obeyed and went into the city and waited for Ananias. And when Ananias came, he received him and he obeyed him to follow in baptism. This Jesus, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. It gives him the right to order Saul around. Do you realize he doesn't give an invitation to Saul? Look how he phrases this here. He says to Saul, um, he says, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then he goes on to command him. There's not, not a lot of discussion here. It's not a lot of back and forth. Saul's able to ask one question. 
And then Jesus tells him, rise and enter the city. These are commands. And you will be told what you're to do. You thought you were the boss. You thought you were the proactive one. You were going to the leaders. You were getting papers. You were following your zeal to do something for what you perceive to be the kingdom of God. And now God's calling the shots. You saw you're going to go and you're going to wait. And you're going to, to go into the city and then you'll be told what to do. And you know what he does? He does it. He obeys God. He demanded obedience. He commanded him what to do. He put him in his place as he will to us if we will but listen. So there it is. Saul's plans are all interrupted by salvation in Jesus Christ. A radical turning point in his life. And I want you to see the great irony here. Do you realize Saul was heading to Damascus to find followers of the way, followers of Jesus, arrest them, and deliver them into the hands of the leaders at Jerusalem. Look how God turned that around. Oh, you think you're going to go arrest my people and round them up and take them to call account before the leadership? I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to bring you before my people to give an account for what you've done. That's why I entitled this sermon, Saul of Tarsus Arrested. Because there's a great irony in that. As he went to arrest people, he indeed himself was arrested an idea I borrowed from my friend Warren Wiersbe. This is what God does. For salvation, God directs us to the church of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? Ananias was introduced in chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and he visited, the Lord visited him in a vision. Now Paul is effectively put on hold for three days. He's blind which is almost to someone who's had sight all their lives, the first few days of being blind is like being dead. But you look, also notice, he didn't eat or drink. And this is profound. What was he doing? Why was he not eating and drinking? I think he was fasting. I think he was praying. I think he had a lot to think about. Because indeed the church was his enemy and you study the ways of your enemy. You have to know what it is they're teaching. You have to hear what it is they're teaching. He heard everything that Stephen said that day as he railed against the council. So the next move then was to be brought into the church. God does not produce Lone Ranger Christians. He may have interrupted Saul's life on the road in a very radical and unique way, but now he's going to continue his work with Saul in the most usual way, in the way that he does with all of us as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, in the church. So here Ananias is introduced. At first he's hesitant, like Moses or Jeremiah or even Zechariah, the, the father of John the Baptist. And he's like, Lord, I heard of this guy. <laughs> I don't know about this, but the Lord handles his objection and sends him anyway. He's like, you have to go and do this. So Ananias complies. Saul receives the Holy Spirit and is baptized by Ananias. Who's Ananias? We never hear of him again. We don't know who he is. Apparently, it wasn't such a big deal that Luke accounted more than anything but this in his life. But he is part of the church of Jesus Christ. And this is showing now that you, Saul, you hotshot, 
you that's going to write 12 books of the Bible, you that's going to take up most of the volume of the book of Acts, you are going to submit to a local body of believers. Do you see how God works and how God does this? He was cared for by the church, as we'll, we see later in the chapter in, in 925, as he gets into trouble there, uh, the believers lower him out of the wall, <laughs> Damascus, in the basket so he can escape safely. He goes to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem he's finally accepted by the church there. He begins to teach, and like his pattern is, he starts to get into a little trouble, and they take him to Caesarea to send him off to Tarsus, and he's in the care of one named Barnabas at that time. And then Barnabas sends for him for help in Antioch, and, and at, from the church in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas from the church are sent out as missionaries. And Paul comes back and reports to that church the things he saw on his missionary journey. And as we follow Paul through the book of Acts, and as we read his letters, we find out he was always with people. He went from church to church, from congregation to congregation. He appointed elders in those local churches to lead those churches locally. They weren't all churches of Paul. No, they were churches of Jesus Christ, all with their own local leadership. And Paul's pattern revealed in his actions and his letters that the local church is to be the center of life and ministry for all believers. And that brings us to our third point. And I want to share this with you. A third encouragement here is to submit to a local church of Jesus Christ. Submit to a local body of believers, Bible-believing people. If you need help finding one, we can help you find a local congregation of Bible-believing people wherever you are. We'll do our best to connect you. So contact us. The info will be at the end if you need help in this. But connect with a local body of believers. This is God's design for your ministry. I don't know your personal situation. I don't know how you came to faith or if you have come to faith. But I do know this, that God's designs for you in His service are to serve Him from the context of a body of believers. That is precisely what Paul did. He submitted himself to Ananias and he submitted himself to local churches continually in his ministry and he immediately began to serve. Let's take a look at how he serves here. And this is, this is profound. This is exciting because Paul immediately began to serve and he begins a pattern here that continues through the book. Let's see. Verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues of Damascus, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. And here's Paul's pattern. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe 
that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Paul immediately began to serve. He begins a pattern that continues through the book. He teaches Christ in the synagogues till they throw him out. Then he continues to teach in that town until his life is in danger, and then he moves on. And in every step he takes, some believe and some come to faith in Christ. His is a pattern of joy and suffering, joy at the many that come to Christ, love in the fellowship of believers so evident in his letters, and zeal for Christ instead of against him. But also for Paul, there was a great deal of suffering. As you read his story, as you read his letters, this becomes very clear, that abuse and hatred have have a way of following him around. Just as he had abused and hated the church before God intervened. As you account his sufferings, it's quite astonishing that, that anyone could endure the things that Paul endures. And isn't that exactly what the Lord said to Ananias? He says, I must show him how much he must suffer for my name. And the question does come to be, why must he suffer so much? To pay for what he did? Maybe there's an element of justice here. Maybe there's a way, and I, and I think Paul would agree that, well, I kind of had this coming. But I'll say this, read his story, and you will have no question that Saul did not defect to the enemy out of some kind of selfish ambition or personal gain because there was no worldly gain aside from the gospel. He would have it no other way. When you read his writings, when you read his letters, you find that he counts all that he had before, all the success in the world, all the, all the, the praises he had from the people, and everything that he had counts that all is lost for the sake of Christ. Christ himself as his only gain. It's clear that Paul derived his joy and his purpose uh, in the service of the Lord. And he regretted nothing. He held no bitterness toward men and only gratitude and love toward Jesus Christ. What would it mean, let me ask you, what would it mean to live a life of such deep purpose and such great joy that no amount of suffering, of abuse, of worldly rejection could cause you to become bitter or to have regrets. What would something like that be worth? And what if every success, every endurance, you gave as credit to Christ, as Paul does? He's not prideful, but he's humble. He's not proud, but he's thankful. What would it be like to lead a life in which humility and thankfulness and joy mark your life and the rejection and the suffering and the difficulty mean nothing to you. Paul experienced all these things because he took the steps of faith after his conversion to serve. And my question is, won't you now 
What might lie ahead for you? What is the next step for you? And that is my next encouragement to you. Take the next step of faith to serve in your local church. If you have been called by God to faith in Jesus Christ, then you are called to serve as a in the local body of believers. And whether you're going to clean up the parking lot or clean up the bathrooms or you're going to teach to thousands, I don't know. But I do know this, that something along those lines, something somewhere in between, God will have you to do and only you can do this. We're told that He saved us to do good works that He prepared before the foundation of the world for you and you alone to do. And there is your path of joy. There is your road to fulfillment right there. You are watching this, so God is calling you into salvation. Do not harden your heart, but take the next step of faith, whatever that is for you. Begins with repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ, which becomes a lifestyle for the believer. It's entry into the kingdom, but it's the way we walk in the kingdom. We repent of our sins. We trust in Jesus Christ to purify us of those sins, to put us on the right path, to give us direction, purpose in His kingdom for His work. Take hold of the gospel and learn the gospel and share the gospel and experience a life that transcends the difficulties of this world, an indestructible life that points to encouragement in Jesus Christ. So review what we've looked at today. What we looked at today was, first of all, we found an enemy of Christ, and the salvation of Christ came to him, and he was delivered into the church of Christ and became a servant of Christ. I encourage you to follow that same path as I pray for you today. Let's pray. Father God, I pray a great blessing upon all who hear this. I pray, Lord, that you would bless them with your intervention and your leadership in their lives. Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, has every right to direct our path. For He is our Creator, and He is our Sustainer, and He is our Savior. So He has all rights to direct us according to His will. So I pray today for myself and for all who are listening, Lord, grant the faith to follow You in all that You have for us to do. Let Christ be known and glorified. Let Him be the center and purpose of our lives, Lord, that we may know You and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Lord, I pray that you glorify yourself in these things today. And we look forward and we look expectantly because we know as Jesus promised, he promised that those who seek will find and those who knock it will be open to you. So we ask you this day, reveal your will to your servants. Bless them with your presence and lead them, Lord, in your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you found that encouraging today, and I hope it has helped you along. If you need help finding a, a local body of believers, or you need encouragement, or you, you need some advice, or you have some feedback for us here and some criticism or questions, maybe I said something that was unclear, that's been known to happen. So contact us, whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. Visit us at whitesrun.org. You'll find more sermons there. You'll find some articles. You'll find some 
some study guides for going through the Bible and learning the Bible. So please make use of those resources. Contact us. I will personally answer those emails. And for now, I pray great blessings over you in Jesus Christ. May he go with you and may his grace and peace abound to you. And may you know his will and may it indeed set you free in Christ.